0: Colossians is a letter written by a man named Paul to a church in the ancient Asian city of Colossae. The original recipients, they are long since dead, but the message endures and applies to us today. Today, we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. If you follow along with me as I read. I read from the English Standard Version. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Would you join me as I pray before we begin Lord, I turn to you and ask for help, not just because that's what I should do. It's what I need. Lord, you know my limitation, my many limitations, my weaknesses. And I pray that you would help me this morning. What we need is to hear your voice. What we need is for your word to speak to us each individually and corporately. What we need is for your presence to be among us. And we pray that that would be the effect this morning as we open your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to impact Saul. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, Lord. It's in your name, Jesus, that we give thanks and pray. Amen. I would hazard a guess that few of us, if any of us, thought much this week or at all about the Crimean War. Maybe you don't even know what that is, but I would guess that most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the famous poem written by Alfred Lloyd Lord Tennyson. He wrote this poem about a British cavalry charge up a hill as they were at war with Russia. Tennyson read the account in in a newspaper and wrote this. In part, he said, you've heard it, half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward, the light brigade. Charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward, the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not, though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs was not to reason why. Theirs was but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell. Boldly they rode, and well into the jaws of death, Into the mouth of hell rode the 600. One recent documentary said the charge lasted just over seven minutes, but the myth has endured for 150 years because of that poem. Now, here's the irony. The poem that Tennyson lionized in verse about the celebrated charge of the Light Brigade was a battle lost. Not only did they give the hill right back, the charge decimated the brigade. The casualties were staggering. No one charging up the hill that day thought it was glorious. One officer said, we knew the thing was desperate before we started, but it was even worse than we thought. The Russians that were being charged upon said, it is madness. And they thought the only reason... Soldiers would charge like this as if they were drunk. But the soldiers, they got orders. And as Tennyson said, it was not theirs to reason why. It was theirs to but do and die. They got orders. And as Christians, is that the way it is for us? Is it not ours to reason why? Not just to do and die? Sometimes it can feel that way. But it's not true. They got orders, we get insight. They got orders, we get insight from God's word. This is what God's word is for. We as followers of Jesus cannot say that it's, only, it's not ours to reason why, only but to do and die. That's not what we said, what we say. Ours is to understand what our mission is. Today we need to know how the kingdom advances because if we don't understand how the kingdom advances, we will feel at times as we face trials and troubles, tribulations and and all kinds of challenges that we are doing all of this for nothing. We're charging up a hill only to give it back. We can be tempted to think that all our work is for nothing and that it's futile and fruitless. We need to know how the kingdom of God advances. The kingdom of God does not advance through fancy marketing. The kingdom of God does not advance through an inspirational mission statement. The kingdom of God does not advance through media productions. This kingdom of God does not advance through the edge of the sword or through towering rhetoric. The kingdom of God advances, our text this morning says, through affliction and proclamation. The kingdom of God advances by means of affliction and proclamation, and that leads to maturity in us. How does the kingdom advance? By affliction and proclamation. And those will constitute my two points this morning. First, affliction. Hold your applause. The kingdom advances by means of affliction. That's a very strange thing to say, but again and again, And again, the purposes of God in our world are advanced through trials and troubles, suffering and distress, misery and heartbreaks, woe and anguish. Only in the kingdom of God can a series of losses lead to kingdom advancement. If you aren't convinced of this, look at the cross. We follow a crucified Savior. Our leader was crucified... And lost everything. And yet, in losing everything, there at Calvary, and then after at His resurrection, was mankind's greatest, was God's greatest kingdom advancement through the affliction of the death of Jesus. If we follow a crucified Savior, and we do, we ought to believe that the kingdom advances through affliction as well. Kingdom The kingdom of God advances and comes through affliction. The way Paul describes it is somewhat jarring in verse 24. Don't let words of scripture that should hit us just sort of pass over over us like water off a duck's back. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up now, this is what's provocative here. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church? Now, to say that something is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus, get, should get our attention. Now, to understand it, we need to understand that what Paul is not saying is that somehow the atoning death of Jesus is somehow insufficient for our salvation. When you put your trust in Christ, His finished work on the cross, and ask forgiveness, it is enough. His death is enough to pay for your and my sins. Not just past, not just present, but future as well. So what does he mean? What does he mean when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? The afflictions are those that are yet to be experienced by the body of Christ. Remember, Jesus so associates himself with his people that the church is called his body. That's not just a metaphor or a nickname or a label, but a reality. When Paul was on the road to Damascus to go and arrest Christians in a little town, Jesus met him on the road, and you recall what he said. He said, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute? Not the church, not the Christians in Damascus, not even my people. But he says, why do you persecute me? So there is a sense that when the followers of Jesus suffer, Jesus suffers. When he hurts, when we hurt, he hurts. When we're persecuted, he's persecuted. When we suffer, he suffers. When, he is affli- when we are afflicted, he is afflicted. We are one with his body. And so what is lacking? Piper helpfully says, Paul's sufferings complete Christ's afflictions not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they were meant to save. In other words, we, all as believers, as members of the body of Christ, have our allotted suffering to endure. And it makes sense because the kingdom of God advances through affliction. And we have to recognize that the kingdom of God did advance uniquely through Paul. Look again at verse 24. Now, I rejoice. This is, he's focusing on himself here. I rejoice that in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. It's interesting because Paul did not plant this church. Paul never led this church. Paul never visited this church, and he didn't know very many people from this church. But his mission was unique. Paul was the one that Christ asked to take this truth about Jesus and make it more than just some some small national belief system, but open it up for the entire world. Paul was uniquely called by the risen Christ to take the gospel to the nations. That's what Gentiles mean. So that anyone from anywhere might be able to come and trust in Jesus. And because of his suffering, there's a sense in which we enjoy the benefit of that to this day. The Lord used Paul's suffering for the good of the church at that time and at this time. And while Jesus used Paul in a unique way, there's another idea embedded in verse 24. I might say it like this. To be a Christian leader in his church is to be willing to suffer for his church. Church leaders of every stripe and every kind are to be human shields for the people of God. This is one of the reasons that leadership in a church must be qualitatively different than anywhere else. For a church's leaders, to be faithful, they must both serve and suffer for the church. Because, why? The gospel advances through affliction and often through the affliction of her leaders. Church leaders are not the ones who are to send others charging up a hill into peril and stand back and watch. They are the ones, as servant leaders, that go up first. They're the ones not to lord it over and boss people or flex by having the final word, it means taking shots for the church they serve. This sort of affliction does not feel much like gospel advancement. Affliction never does. The pain and tears associated with leadership often hurts more than I can adequately put words to. It should sober us. If you want to be a church leader, part of of what you're saying is, I want to suffer for other people. That's part of what you're saying. Do you want to be a pastor? What you're saying is, I want to suffer. I want to put myself in harm's way. I want to lay my life down for others. I recently heard a pastor talking about his pastoral tenure, and he said, I've been... Pastoring for nearly 20 years and it's way harder than I thought. If I knew how hard this was, I never would have wanted to do it in the first place. So how are some of the, what are some of the things that leaders are called to do in local churches? They're called to protect the flock from internal threats. They're called to protect the flock from external threats. They're called to comfort the mourning. They're called to challenge the prideful. They're called to protect those who need help, whoever they may be. They're called to stand in the way of bullies. They're called to run into trouble instead of away from it. They're called to preach the truth of Jesus week in and week out. They're called to preach the truth of Jesus when it's popular and when it's not. They're called to lead by serving and they're called to treat everyone the same. Pastors are called to be servants Of all. I am convinced that God takes the weakest among us, the poorest, the simplest, and calls them to pastoral ministry. I know I would never study the Bible this closely if I did not have to preach, teach, and counsel with it. But in my weakness, God is yet. To work Same thing is true For all church leaders Around the globe The gospel advances Through the suffering Of his people And through the affliction Of her leaders But look at the effect Look at the effect Verse 26 Verse 26 Here's what happens Here's what's made known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations is now revealed to his saints. What is that mystery? It's this, verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles or the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? Here's the answer. It's this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the mystery is, no longer does God dwell in tents or buildings, but now God in his spirit dwells in his people. No longer are walls put up so that the presence of God might not break out against other people. Now the people of God are marked by the indwelling of the Spirit of Christ. And this is something we take for granted. This is something we don't think enough about. God dwells not just with His people, but in them. No longer does God keep His distance from His people. Now He dwells in them. And that there, the fact that He dwells in His people, is the ground of all our hope. You see, our hope is not just that we have eternal life or that we're forgiven or that we will be in heaven. Our hope is much grander. Our hope is in the fact that Christ is in us. And that's the reason we can hope in glory, hope for glory. The reason that there is hope for us both today and for all time is that we have Christ in us. Not just in you individually, but in us together do we have hope the hope of glory. When Paul says, in Christ in you, he means all of you. That's plural you. Christ in all of you, the hope of glory. There is a reality that all genuine Christians, when they stitch their lives together with other Christians in local communities, what the Bible calls churches, you have a hope that is greater than you would if you were alone. What is your hope? Not... Your hope is not in following leaders that suffer, but in following Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's your hope. You have no lasting hope beyond him. Nothing will deliver you from your trials and tribulations, your heartache and your trouble like Jesus. Leaders, they will come and they will go. Jesus does not. If you put your hope in leaders, if you put your hope in anything else, you're asking for disappointment and disillusionment. But if your hope is in Christ, you cannot be disappointed. He is with us, He is in us, He is our hope of glory. So, how does the kingdom advance? It advances by means of affliction and also through proclamation. Affliction, that has the effect of, of, of having Christ in us, the hope of glory, but also proclamation. Did you see that in verse 28? You notice what we are called as a church to proclaim. Verse 28, Him we proclaim. Who is that Him? That Him is Jesus. Ray Ortland Jr. is exactly right when he said him. Paul summarized his ministry in one word, him. Not Christ plus blank, but Christ as the only focus. All other topics of interest had to fit around him and promote him to make him clearer. If they didn't serve that purpose, Paul got bored quickly. And we should too. Him, not only him, but we. Whatever others may do, this is is what we do. Whatever message others may shout, we'll shout louder about Jesus Christ. We are responsible to Him and will give an account to Him only and finally. Him we proclaim. Not beg as if He were poor, not suggest as if He were doubtful, not propose as if He were the premise of something larger, but proclaim as the only life that is truly life, accessible to everyone on terms of grace. Received with the empty hands of faith, giving all, demanding all. Him we proclaim. Not him we proclaim in passing, not him we proclaim sometimes, not him we proclaim but not so much to make people feel uncomfortable, not him we proclaim but our real interests lie elsewhere, not him we proclaim when it suits us, no, him we proclaim. Him and no one else we proclaim. Him and not ourselves we proclaim. Him and not financial success we proclaim. Him and not happiness we proclaim. Him and not our opinions we proclaim. Him and not our theological distinctives do we proclaim. Him and not our preferences do we proclaim. Him and not our sin do we proclaim. We proclaim Him and Him only. The kingdom advances by means of the affliction of the people and the leaders and of the proclamation of him. This proclamation is not just for church leaders. It is for all of us. Him we proclaim. Him we together proclaim. This is why we've talked about this series being entitled, having the subtitle, Fix Our Lives on Jesus. We must fix our lives on Jesus. We must be a people that are fixed upon Jesus. This means when we gather on Sundays, we're going to consciously focus on Jesus and the hope that Christians and non-Christians have in Him. This means we're going to focus on Jesus, all He has done, all He is doing, and all He will do. And We do this in our singing and our praying and our preaching, our giving and our fellowship. And you might think, Well, maybe that means that we're going to miss out on other important topics. Paul says here in chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim, but that doesn't mean that's the only topic that he talks about. Rather, it means that when we talk about anything, we must understand how that topic relates to Jesus, or we do not understand it correctly. In fact, if you read the book of Colossians, and I highly recommend it, you will go on to read Discussions on how to fight sin, how to pursue holiness, how to obey, how husbands and wives ought to treat each other, how to forgive, how to maintain church unity, how to pray, how to have wisdom. But yet we can say with Paul, him we proclaim. You see, we don't understand any of those things if we don't understand how they relate to Jesus. That's why we must fix ourselves on Jesus. Him we proclaim. And then look at the effect. Look at the effect in verse 28. Him we proclaim. Warning who? Everyone. And teaching who? Everyone with all wisdom that we may present who? Everyone mature in Christ. See, you might be of the mindset that proclamation of the gospel is something that is just for people who do not follow Jesus that may be your mindset, but that's not the Bible's mindset. That's not Paul's mindset. We proclaim Him. How do we proclaim Him? Both by warning and teaching. Both by warning and teaching. We warn things like this. Don't fall away. We warn people, don't live for anything else, even though it looks shiny and inviting. We warn people, do not think that your suffering means that Jesus has abandoned you. We warn people and say, your sin, it cannot disqualify you if you're repentant. We warn people and say, do not try to find yourself in any place but in Him. We say, don't live for money or attention or influence. Don't be trapped by the enticement of sin. Don't forsake the gathering of the uh, the church. Don't be taken in by pride. We warn. And that's part of what it means to proclaim Him. We also teach. We teach. We teach what it looks like to obey. We teach what it looks like to be holy. We teach what it looks like to honor God with how we speak and how we think and how we live and how we act. We teach as we forgive. We teach. We teach. Put our hope in Jesus. We teach the fact that we do not live by food alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. So how can we measure advancement? How can we measure gospel advancement with maturity? Do you see that in verse 28? Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature. The goal is not conquering lands. The goal is not having some kind of impressive ministry. The goal is maturity or completion. That's the goal. The goal is to be mature is, is to be completely surrendered to him. To be mature is to say, do with me what you want, Jesus. I am yours, heart and soul. To be mature is to say, make me into what you want me to be. I am yours. <clears throat> to be mature is to say, take me where you want me to go. I am yours. Maturity is just another way of saying, Lord, have your way with me. Complete the work of that you started in me. And that's the reality. All of us in this room that are believers in Jesus, the Lord has started a work in us, and our call is to continue to listen to the proclamation of Him and to understand that our hope is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And as we understand that hope, our our goal is to be presented mature, both as we as we live day by day, and as we look to the future coming of the glory of the Lord. So we can't say that we're just soldiers following orders. It is not just our... We can't say along with the soldiers, theirs was not to reason why, theirs was but to do and die. No, we understand. We understand what we're about. We understand that we are about Jesus. And we understand that... The advancement of his kingdom happens through affliction and it happens through proclamation. And so though we may be afflicted in many ways, we know the gospel and the kingdom advances. Though we may face trials and hardships, though the hot winds of tribulation may blow against us, we know that that is no hindrance to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Though... Everything might at times seem futile. We know God is working things all together for our good so that he might present us one day mature. Lord, do with me what you want. Complete your work in me and not what I think I should do. Let's pray. What I pray for everybody, all of us here who are followers of Jesus, what it's super easy to come to you with a list of things that we think need to be done or expectations that we think you need to adhere to. It's easy to expect that gospel advancement come in different ways than through affliction and proclamation Lord we're grateful that you have not enlisted us just to charge up a hill for no reason in a losing battle we don't know Lord how everything will end but we do know you are victorious we pray Lord that you would have your work in us so that you might present us, so that we might be presented mature to you. Thank you that as Christians we have the life of God and the soul of mankind. Thank you that we know that you're not just amongst us, but you are with us, in us, Lord. And I know that you will be working in all of us until that day. And so Lord, Help us to be responsive. Help us to be pliable in your hands. Lord, I pray specifically for any here who are not Christians. Lord, I pray that if there is, Lord, a sense of, I pray that you would just give them a sense of conviction and awareness that they aren't who they should be. Help them to recognize that only in Jesus can they find who they were made to be. And help us as a church, Lord, to be fixed on you. Fads will come and go. But we pray we would be a people who proclaim you in all we do, both in word and in deed. And thereby, may we be presented one day mature and complete to you. Jesus, we're grateful for all that you are and all that you're doing. And in your name we pray, amen.